morning again. So during these, at least many of the summer weeks, we are looking at selected psalms. And if you were here last week, remember that we looked at Psalm 126. And uh, our focus last week was kind of on the sadness of the Christian life. That, you know, we talked about how the life of faith includes weeping and how uh, growing in Christ goes together with growing in our capacity to weep. But even in that psalm that we looked at last week, the final note, you might remember, was a note of joy. We read that he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And it's really important to remember that and to notice that, that in the Christian life, joy always gets the last word. Joy always gets the last word. But then we might wonder, maybe it's not just the last word, maybe it's... Maybe it's um, the word from beginning to end. Maybe, maybe joy in the Christian life is always there, kind of humming, humming in the background or, or right there beneath the surface. So the psalm we're going to look at today is Psalm 16. And I'll read it for us. You can follow along either in your Bibles or up on the screens. Hear the word of God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. So, um, I want to go through this psalm with these points. Um, First, just we're going to notice that joy is possible, according to this psalm. And some of us might have forgotten that. The joy is possible. But then we're going to look at a threat to joy. And then we'll talk about the pursuit of joy. And then last, the fullness of joy. So first, the possibility of joy. Uh, according to this psalm, it's possible to move through life with joy, with like a deep sense of well-being and contentment and satisfaction. Joy is possible. And when you hear that, you might think, well, yeah, of course joy is possible. Because you can think of times when you've experienced it, when you have felt really satisfied, when things in your life have felt right. Um, last night, I had an extraordinary experience that I felt like I needed to share. Some friends of ours treated us to a dinner at this amazing place called, uh, what is it called? Texas de Brazil. <laughs> have, you ever, have you heard of this place? Have you been to this place? Oh my goodness. I knew... I knew that this place was good when I walked up to the salad bar and it was like 
all cheese and bacon. <laughs> this is this is my kind of place. And so they give you they give you a little circle, and on one side it's red, and on the other side it's green. And when you want meat to just magically appear at your table, you just flip it from red to green, and then servers just start swarming your table with this amazing meat on sticks, and they're slicing it off, and just you. You can have as much meat as you want, and I ate so much meat. It was extraordinary. <laughs> and I, I left feeling really satisfied and <laughs> full of joy. I thought, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. <laughs> but you know this, joy is deeper. Joy is deeper. Dallas Willard defines joy like this. He says, joy is not a mere sensation but a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. It, it claims our entire body and soul, both the physical and the non-physical side of the human self. And that definition is right in line with our psalm, I think, because it's not talking about like a superficial, fleeting happiness. It's not talking about an emotion that comes and goes. Um, the psalm is talking about something deeper and steadier. Willard says that joy is pervasive, and constant. And, and David, the psalmist, I think would agree with that. You know, sometimes in deep bodies of water, there's an undercurrent that, that runs uh, in the opposite direction as the surface. Uh, and so even when the water surface is disturb, disturbed and choppy and tumultuous, the deep current is, is strong and steady and powerful. And, and that family, I think, is an image of Christian joy. It's, it's this deep sense of well-being that is really independent of our present circumstances. It's joy that leads David to write, My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. It's joy that leads him to write, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I wonder, can you say that? Does that match your experience? See, some of us might doubt that this kind of deep joy is even possible. Experiences of pain and suffering and sorrow can lead us to think that life is basically going to be bad and that, sure, maybe it'll get better, hopefully it will get better when Jesus returns. Um, but in the meantime, we just have to settle for uh, like a lack of joy. Like, some of us have become content with discontentment. We've settled for something less than the fullness of joy. Is joy like this possible? Is joy like this possible? According to David, yes. And remember who David is. I mean, this is not a man who led, like, a charmed and trouble-free life. I mean, this is a guy who spent a lot of his life running from his father-in-law who wanted to kill him. Um, I mean, David experienced all kinds of troubles and hardships, plenty of hardship, plenty of weeping, but, but in the midst of that, he's able to say, um, there's real, deep, abiding joy. This kind of joy is possible. So that's the first thing to notice, but then also notice that it's not inevitable. You know, there's so much in this world that threatens joy. All kinds of external threats, like hardships, trials, pain, grief. But in addition to those external threats, our psalm highlights a threat that comes from within ourselves. And we see it in the beginning of verse 4. 
David writes, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multi multiply. That is a great threat to our joy, running after other gods. Um, idolatry, that's the word that scriptures use. In the Old Testament, God's people were surrounded by nations who were quite literally running after other gods, worshiping other deities. And one of the constant temptations for God's people is to do the same, to turn from the one true God and to turn toward false gods and to embrace them, to look to them for comfort and security and success by, by giving our allegiance to them. People today often think of idolatry as just an ancient problem, to dis and we dismiss it as an ancient problem. But it's not, when you think about it. I mean, idolatry is just as alive and well today as it was in ancient times. Tim Keller, gosh, I feel like I'm still grieving the loss of Tim Keller. Um, Tim Keller, he, he died uh, within, the, within the last month. Um, but this is what, he puts it like this. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity. Um, and when you think of idolatry in those terms, you realize, oh, this is, this is something that you and I face like moment by moment. Like this is a constant temptation in our lives to turn from the one true God and to seek our satisfaction and joy and fulfillment in part of God's creation. Someone or something that we think will really make our lives work well. And the claim of the psalm is that doing that, that, that running after other gods, it multiplies sorrow. It robs us of joy. And it's really tragic because, I mean, why do we run after these other gods in the first place? I mean, we do it precisely because we think that, that they will increase our joy that they will um, lead to the fullness of joy. And so we look to things like money and sex and power for comfort and security and meaning because we think that these gods will be the gods to satisfy us. We think that they will give us the deep sense of well-being that we really long for. Um, you remember that place in Jeremiah where the Lord says this. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And, and that's, I mean, that is essentially an illustration of idolatry, just with a different word, with a different picture. But um, it, it is a powerful and also a tragic image, isn't it? I mean, ironically, the reason God's people um, dug their own cisterns is they thought that they would be better off with those. They thought that they'd be more joyful. Uh, and instead, they find dust and ashes. I mean, this is the great threat to joy, turning from the one true God, forsaking the spring of living water, and then seeking that water and that fullness and that joy elsewhere. Think of all the potential idols we have. Achievement, human approval, entertainment, alcohol, romantic relationships, the latest Apple product, a six-figure salary, a great reputation, a, su a successful family kids who get into great schools. I mean, anything. Like, we have the capacity to turn anything into an idol. The old, the old uh, reformed theologian John Calvin said that the heart is, is basically just a factory. 
of idols. Sometimes our idols are very good things. They become idols when we treat them as like ultimate things and seek to rest our hearts in them. They become idols when we run after them to quench our deep thirst for joy. And then we find that they are broken cisterns. They can't give us what we really need. They never satisfy. So family, I wonder, like, how does this play out in your life? What are you looking to for contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment? Where are you seeking joy? Where are you seeking joy? That might be a misleading question, actually. (laughs) Where are you seeking joy? How are you pursuing joy? Because one of the things the psalm helps us to see is that joy probably isn't the kind of thing we get by seeking after it, by pursuing it. If we try to seek joy, it's likely that we'll always find it to be elusive. But notice that David isn't singing about how much he wants joy and all the things he's doing to get it. Right? Like he's not directly chasing after a deep sense of well-being. Instead, what we see is that in David's life, at least in the way it plays out in this psalm, um, joy is the byproduct of other pursuits. What we see is that David is pursuing God and he's pursuing love for other people. And the result of those pursuits is joy. And so it's like David builds into his life um, certain attitudes and actions and he cultivates habits of his heart, habits of loving God and loving others. And the result is joy. So let me point out some of this. First, look at verse 1. He writes, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Think of that as like one of David's habits, to take refuge in God. Um, to, To look for his security and his stability and his comfort only in God. I mean, that's the opposite of idolatry, isn't it? It's a form of loving God, to look to him for the shelter that we need, to rely on him for the security we need. Um, we live in a, in a culture that loves to prey on our fears and to make us afraid so that, they can, so that people can usually sell us something, like a gated community or a great security system for our homes. Um, but, but what if we just realize that, like, <laughs> this, is, this is a tangent. I was just thinking about this passage this past week. You know, there's that amazing place where Jesus says, don't worry about your life. And then he says, consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. And don't you kind of wish that he had said, consider like the mountains. Or consider the the giant boulders. But he doesn't. I mean, he says, don't worry about your life. And then he says, because your life is like a bird. It's so small and fragile. You can crush a bird. Or your life is like a little flower that can just, I mean, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And Jesus, I mean, it's like Jesus is saying, that's what your life is like. And so, like, why worry about that? Why worry about that? Um, David seeks refuge in God. He says, 
my life is, is really fragile and frail, and so I'm just going to like trust that God is going to keep me secure for however long God wants to keep me secure. That's remarkable. Um, now look at verse 2. He says, I have no good apart from you. Again, this cuts directly against the tendency of our heart to run after other gods. David treats God as his supreme good and, and as the source of all other goods. Um, and, and so this isn't to say that there aren't really good things out in the world. There, there are these other goods, but they are goods only as they come from God as gifts. God's gifts are no longer idols for David. They're just good gifts to be received with a thankful heart. And so I think there's an invitation to a practice there, to practice acknowledging God as the ultimate good and as the source of all the other little goods that we receive in our lives. Look at verse 3. It's for the saints in the land. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And, and so I take this as a way of, of David saying that not only does he love God, but he also really loves people. Like he prioritizes um, community. His focus is off of himself, and it's on to God, and it's on to others. And, and the byproduct of that focus, not on himself, not pursuing joy, but loving God and loving people, the byproduct of that is joy. Verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So David's re reviewing God's goodness to him, and he's thanking God for God's provision. And, you know, we spent um, weeks and weeks on this, but one way to cultivate joy, remember, is just to practice gratitude. To practice um, with your heart and mind highlighting the good gifts that God has poured into your life, and then to actually express thanks to God for those. Maybe you're in a season in your life right now where it's hard to say that the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. But even your life itself is a great gift, isn't it? I mean, you can find something to give thanks for. And so that practice of gratitude is a practice that leads to joy. Verse 8. I have set my screen always before me. <laughs> And because my phone is in my right hand, I shall not be shaken. No, it doesn't say that. But that's how we live, isn't it? I mean, don't we always have screens before us and we think that like somehow these are going to satisfy us and um, fulfill us? And then we wonder, like, why do we finish binging the latest Netflix show and we are not feeling like full of joy, feeling full of joy? No, I mean... Um, David has practiced turning his attention unto God himself. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. See, David knows how to practice the presence of God. He knows how to take um, his heart and mind and to um, focus them on the presence of God. How to bring the Lord's reality to his mind over and over again. And, and that takes practice. I mean, that is a habit to, to form or not to form. You can form the habit of setting the Lord before you, or you can form the habit of always staring at your phone whenever you have a moment of free time. And God just gives us that choice. What this psalm helps us to see is that David was joyful because joy wasn't the thing he wanted most. 
Um, what he wanted most was deep relationship with the living God. And so he didn't pursue joy, he pursued God, and he did that by engaging in these regular practices that helped him connect with God's grace. And I wonder, family, is your life like that? How are you pursuing God? How are you regular, regularly connecting with his grace? Can you say with David that you have set the Lord always before you? Like, is that your default mode, to set the Lord always before you? See, that's the pursuit of joy. It's not the pursuit of joy, but the pursuit of God. And then David talks about fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. What does that mean? Try this. It means that your joy is full. It means that you're not lacking in joy. It means that if your soul is like a gas tank, uh, then, then the, the line is all the way over there on the right pointing at the, at the F. Right? You're full. You're full of joy. Um, but maybe you don't feel like that this morning. Maybe you feel actually like you're running on joy fumes, empty. What does it mean to have fullness of joy? What does it mean to have fullness of joy when the present blessings of God can feel so elusive? What does it mean to have fullness of joy in a world like this one, where we experience highs and lows, peaks and valleys, Remember what joy is. To be joyful isn't to be cheerful. It's not to feel great about how things are going in your life. Joy is about something deeper. Think of that body of water where, where the surface is tumultuous and uh, deep down underneath there's this current that's just steady and true and always moving in the right direction. Um, Willard, again, he says, joy is not a mere sensation, but a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. It claims our entire body and soul, both the physical and the non-physical side of the human self. And we said that um, the way to get joy isn't to pursue it, but to pursue love, loving God and loving others. Joy is the byproduct of love. But now... Um, Let's remember what Bonhoeffer said. I've been thinking about his line when, when we look at these psalms, that, that if we want to be people who understand the psalms and can pray the psalms and sing the psalms and read the psalms, the first question to ask is not, um, what does this have to say about me? But what does it have to say about Jesus Christ? Joy is the byproduct of love, but who's love? You know, both Peter and Paul, they made use of Psalm 16 when they were proclaiming the good news about Jesus. They reasoned that Psalm 16 couldn't finally be just about David, and it couldn't even finally be just about them. And the reason it couldn't be about David was this. David suffered and died, and his body saw corruption, to use their words. David died when he went into the ground, and, and you know, David, King David... Um, he's still in the ground, still in the ground, and he has entirely decomposed. But look at verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And so Peter and Paul, when they're thinking about this and, and, and 
reasoning about it, they, they say, well, there's a problem there because David says that he's not going to see corruption, but David did see corruption. David's come undone. He's returned to dust. You see, if, if in the end we die and our bodies turn to dust, then how is joy possible? That's what Peter and Paul started thinking about. All this talk about joy and all these hopes for healing and restoration and reconciliation, all of our longings for like a real shalom, all of our prayers for God's kingdom to come in Richmond as it is in heaven. Like, what are we talking about if in the end we just become dust? Do we really just want life to be easy for us until we die and our bodies rot? Is that the fullness of joy? Or maybe David, in a way he probably couldn't even understand or imagine, really wasn't talking about himself. See, that's what Peter and Paul say when they're preaching in Acts. They say, look, Psalm 16 verse 10 says that the Holy One won't be abandoned, that his body won't see corruption, which means this can't be about David. That's what they say. It has to be about Jesus. And so they conclude the Holy One is not David. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus Christ. Dallas Willard says that hope is joy's indispensable support. Hope is joy's indispensable support. But what is that hope? I mean, it's not, that, it's not hope that things are going to go well for us in this life. It, it can't be, right? I mean, chances are things won't go well for us in this life. Jesus told his disciples, things won't go well for you in this life. Do you remember that? He just said it, and we still think that like somehow things should go well for us. But Jesus said they won't. Um, our hope, family, is Jesus Christ. This one who has died for us and been raised from the dead for us and is seated at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore. And our hope is that in some mysterious way, we're seated there with him. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Our hope is that God has taken care of us by taking care of Jesus and getting us in Jesus. And that one day, even when we go into the ground, and we will, we will be held by the love of God through our deaths, in our deaths and through our deaths. And that one day, this same Jesus, still bearing his scars, will return and he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. And he will make all things new. See, the fullness of joy is the byproduct of love. But whose love? I mean, whose love is it that can really produce the fullness of joy? Here's what Jesus says. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I'm gonna, I want to re start reading this again, and I just want you to hear Jesus addressing you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full.
It's the love of Jesus that leads to the fullness of joy. Um, it's the joy of Jesus that leads to the fullness of joy. You know, Jesus was a joyful person. Last week we talked about how he was a sad, crying person, and that's true too. Uh, he was the man of sorrows, the man of all sorrows. Um, as the true human being, he was sadder than any of us, but as the true human being, he was also more joyful than any of us. This deep, abiding joy right there in the sadness. Um, he was joyful because he was the one and really the only one who lived out Psalm 16. Um, he was joyful not because he was always chasing after joy, but because he was always resting his life in his Father's love. Always. Jesus always rested his life in his Father's love. Um, and, and so he took refuge in God, and he saw that his relationship with the Father was his greatest good, and he surrounded himself with a community of people whom he loved, and he practiced gratitude, and he kept the Father always before him, and he did that family for you and for me. He trusted in the goodness of God, even when he knew that doing so would lead him directly to the cross, even when he knew that it meant his life would not go well. He trusted in the goodness of God. And so family, we know a God in Jesus who loves us like this. Um, I mean, it turns out that God is way more committed to your joy than you are. We spend most of our lives like seeking joy in all the wrong places. And all the while, we have this God in and as Jesus who just promises us joy who guarantees it, who says, um, your joy will be full because of me. It's the fullness of God's love for you that will lead in the end to your fullness of joy. Um, I don't even know how well this connects, but on Sunday mornings I always try to refine my sermon early, get up early, try to refine it. And this quote came to mind, I know I've shared it before, but... Um, An, an old theologian named John Webster who has also passed away, he, he says this. He says, in one sense, there aren't any great depths to the Christian life. Thank God. That's, that's good. That already takes a little bit of pressure off. Because we're always like trying to figure out like, what should we be doing as Christians? Like, what, what's, the, what's the key? Like, what's the thing that I haven't learned? And as soon as I learn it, like, then it will all just like, fall into place and it will all make sense. Like, what's the deep secret? So he says, in one sense, there aren't any great depths to the Christian life. No mystical doctrines to learn. No tricks of the spiritual life to master. No experiences to cultivate. What there is instead is the quiet daily business of setting our hearts on what God has done for us. the quiet daily business of setting our hearts on what God has done for us. And we have a meal to help with that. It's not Texas Day Brazil. <laughs> but, amazingly, it's way better. It's way better. The Lord actually is our portion at this table. And so let's pray and then we'll eat.